And hello, everybody. Welcome to Narrative Live on a Wednesday night. Another special report tonight. We're going to be taking a look at the mole inside the FBI. Charles McGonigal, what exactly was he up to in the last 20, 25 years while he was at the FBI? We're subtitling this, How Putin Got His Inside Man. Plus, we'll have all the news on Marjorie Taylor Greene, George Santos, and all the latest from Ukraine coming up. And I'm also thrilled to announce our very special friend, Craig Unger, the author of American Compromise, is here. Hi, Craig. How are you? I'm very good, thanks. Good to see you, Zev. Likewise, it's been a while. I'm excited to have you here because you have probably the greatest insight of the workings of the mob inside New York, and particularly as it involves Donald Trump and some of the people that the former counterintelligence head of the New York office would have been investigating. I'm excited to hear your take about what might not have been investigated if Russians did, in fact, have a mole inside the FBI. Do you think he was as much that as I'm saying he is a real long-time mole? It's quite possible. And you have to wonder whether or not McGonagall was responsible for the leaks in the weeks just before the election. He was hired, I believe, on October 4th to that position Mm. in 2016, just about exactly a month before the election. And there were a fair number of leaks there that forced James Comey's hands, and he made that announcement eight days before the election that they were back investigating Hillary. So it's quite possible McGonagall was involved. I don't know. But it also raises a larger question. There's so many things about which one Trump should have been investigated. And you have to wonder, why didn't the FBI go there? You have to wonder why. And there's a long list of investigations that McGonagall was involved in, and we'll go through them tonight, which didn't ever reach sort of a satisfactory conclusion. Some of them, like, TWA 800, we just don't know what happened. In other cases, you had people wrongly accused, but we never found out what really was the main cause of these crimes or the criminals involved in these crimes. So we'll go through all of that. Plus, I've been able to find out a lot about what McGonagall was involved with in Albania. And let me tell you, it's unseemly stuff. It all goes back to Vladimir Putin and Oleg Deripaska, two names we know quite well. And we'll cover all of that as we go through the hour. But I should get everyone caught up on the news. So let's do that first. And topic the news tonight, the United States will be sending its Abrams M1 tanks to Ukraine, and Germany says it will approve sending its Leopard tanks. Joe Biden made the announcement today at the White House. The United States will be sending 31 Abrams tanks to Ukraine, the equivalent of one Ukrainian battalion. Secretary Austin has recommended this step because it will enhance the Ukraine's capacity to defend its territory and achieve its strategic objectives. What that really means is the balance of power is really going to shift on the Ukrainian battlefield because Russia really does not have the firepower to fight against these kinds of tanks with the armor that these tanks have. In other news, it's hard to believe, but apparently Marjorie Taylor Greene believes she can be the vice president to another Trump presidency. Here's what NBC reported this morning. Vice President Marjorie Taylor Greene. According to NBC News exclusive reporting, the controversial Georgia Congresswoman is setting her sights on just that, a presidential ticket, hoping to team up with former President Donald Trump as his VP in 2024. Former Trump aide Steve Bannon, who spoke to Green about the job, told NBC News she, quote, 
sees herself on the short list. Of course, we're a long way away from him actually making a short list and vetting candidates. She obviously really likes Marjorie Taylor Greene. She is somebody who has an immense ambition, as Steve Bannon said to me. He paraphrased an old Washington saw saying every time she looks in the mirror, she sees a president staring back at her. The vice presidency might be the fastest route to do that. Meanwhile, a lawyer for the former vice president, Mike Pence, says documents, classified documents, were discovered at the Indiana home of the former vice president, and a small number of them have now been returned to the National Archives. It's unclear if he'll be getting his own special counsel. And in other news, after our reporting last week about the financial worries around George Santos's campaign financing, it seems that he's amended some of his campaign financing reports that we said might be illegal last week. Now he says that it was not a personal loan that he funded his campaign with, but rather money that came from somewhere else. Now, where did it come from? He doesn't say, although we did outline last week in our reporting, which seems to have got a lot of people's attention, that the financing did come from unusual characters who funding his campaign. That is the news. Coming up, another big story that the news, the mainstream news, has neglected to follow up on. We're not going to do the same thing tonight. Inside the FBI, was there a mole? For the Russians. Hey, it's Zev from Narrative. I'm excited to announce the launch of my new original series, Spy Murdoch. This is an epic story of Rupert Murdoch as an intelligence asset, and it's all 100% true. Spy Murdoch will premiere in February on Narrative's Patreon feed and Narrative's new premium YouTube channel. Now, to join either of those services, you can either head over to patreon.com forward slash narrative and sign up there, or to join our new YouTube premium channel, just look for the join button underneath the screen when you're watching on YouTube. This is brand new content with bombshell revelations that have never been revealed before about the iconic Murdoch. We will explain, amongst many other things, how Fox News gained such a foothold in the United States. For a limited time, we're offering access to all our premium content for just $5 a month. Prices will go up, so lock in today. You'll have a front row seat as I unravel the secrets of Rupert Murdoch for the first time. Don't miss this opportunity to be among the first to learn these brand new details and watch this narrative original series with me. It'll change the way you view history and your place in it. That's Spy Murdoch, beginning in February on Narrative. Back live now with Craig Unger, the author of American Compromise. Craig. Take us back to that moment, because that, that was a good place to start. James Comey had to hire somebody new for counterintelligence agent in charge. He chose Charles McGonigal. Tell us a little bit more, if you can, about uh, what Comey was doing with those investigations, with the Wiener emails. We're getting down to the last four weeks before the presidential election, and there was a lot of internal stuff going on within the FBI. I don't think nearly enough attention has been paid to that. To me, there was pretty clearly a Rudy Giuliani wing of the FBI. And now we see Rudy, of course, as a cartoon character, and he looks ridiculous with his dyed hair dripping down his face, and he, he's completely discredited. And it's, back then, he wasn't not so much. He was still a bit of the America's a mayor attached to him. I think the position McGonagall got of counterintelligence is extremely important. And one of the big flaws the FBI has made, and Robert Mueller and the Mueller probe as well, is that these investigations were treated as criminal rather than counterintelligence. And when you're dealing with people like Oleg Deripaska, it's really got to be counterintelligence. We, national security should be the first priority, not 
the last. And it also raises questions about how they were treating Donald Trump, too, because as I reported in my previous book, House of Trump, House of Putin, the Russian mafia had been laundering millions and millions of dollars through Trump real estate. And that all went by the wayside. Forgot about it. No one was ever prosecuted on it. Uh, and it wasn't even raised much in a, by the mainstream media at all, not to mention the FBI. The time that Charles McGonigal spent in the FBI really tracks the whole emergence of the Russian mob in New York and also the United States. We had the Cosa Nostra there before that. And then the Russian mob sort of came in with the Refuseniks, maybe, amongst them. And then with that mob emerging, there was a new leadership in the FBI and in New York City. And that leadership was essentially Rudy Giuliani. And he was the guy in charge, at least in the mayor's office, but before that at the attorney general's office, for policing this change that happened from the Cosa Nostra into the more Russian-controlled New York mob scene. He had a very good collaborator because James Kulstrom was the head of the New York City FBI field office. And we know that Kulstrom and Rudy had a long history of working together, even after they both left their respective offices. They worked as part of a consultancy together. They traveled the world, providing services to different people. And they also always kept an open ear to what was going on in the FBI field office by being involved in the FBI union, which is where they were able to get a lot of influence and get a lot of information. And of course, at the same time as all this was happening, Louis Free, another close collaborator of Rudy Giuliani, was the FBI director. So you really had the three very important positions, especially in New York City, that really had a way of controlling who was going to be the top crime guy, who was going to be the bottom crime guy. And it seems that Charles McGonigal, way back in 1996, began his career as an officer in that mob world, really looking at Russian counterintelligence in New York City. So a long time that he must be familiar with a lot of the same players who are still there today. And Kalser was very close to Trump as well. I've seen outtakes of him on video explaining his relationship with Trump. I quote him in my last book, American Contramuck, and he said that Trump, who was famously cheap about giving to charities back in the 70s, gave $1.3 million from his favorite charity. Kalser said Trump would call him at least once a week for a 40-year period. That's a real friendship. I don't know how many friends uh, you speak to every week for 40 years. Um, that many, actually. And Roland was cracking down on this. When I first got into investigating the, the money laundering going through Trump Tower, the Russian mafia money, to be honest, it got FBI files. And I think if I can get FBI files, the FBI should have been able to get them too. So when did the mob infiltration and Trump sort of coincide? What years are we talking about here? I go back all the way back to the 1980s. In the 1984, a guy named David Bogdan was a Russian mobster, and according to FBI files, and he went to Trump Tower. Trump Tower just opened the previous year, so it was this glamorous, splitting new building. And Bogdan was a mobster. He personally met with Trump. He had, I believe it was $6 million in cash. And he said, I'll take five condos. And a lot of money back then in the 1980s. At 15 million today or yeah. so. Yeah. And Trump, or part of the problem is very hard to prosecute money laundering because you have to prove that Trump, the recipient, knew it came from illicit sources. But Trump, of course, doesn't ask questions. He doesn't say, oh, where do you get that money? Was it from your prostitution rig? No, he just takes the money and doesn't ask questions. And this kind of thing happened 
with 1,500 condos that Trump sold under conditions that, that count for money laundering. That is, to an anonymous owner of a limited liability corporation and all cash purchases without any bank financing whatsoever. That's 1,300 condos. And it's rare for a Trump condo to go for under a million dollars. So by 1996, there must have been, do you know how many towers he'd built by 1996? Was that post bankruptcy? Well, so many bankruptcies, it's hard to keep track. Yeah. But he was still on the ropes from his seats in Atlantic City. And the Russian mob came to his aid again and again in bailing him out. In 2002, you may recall, Felix Sater and his company, Bayrock Group, moved into Trump Tower. They took their offices on the 24th floor, just one or two floors below Trump's personal office. And they started making deals with him. And they said, look, you don't have to put up a dime. We will put up all the funding. We will, you don't have to develop the skyscrapers. We'll do the development. We just want to borrow your name. And for that, we'll give you, I think it was 18 to 25% of the profits on a franchise deal for which he had to do nothing. So it was an incredibly lucrative deal for Trump. And it happened again and again. And these people who ran Bayrock were affiliated with the Russian mafia and or Russian intelligence. And it goes way, way back. I think as well in the 1990s, he got involved in World Resorts International which is a murky part of the Trump history, but it also involves a lot of mob figures, if I remember correctly. So as he was emerging from that bankruptcy, he sort of landed on his feet with World Resorts. And then you're right, he developed this very lucrative relationship with Felix. And that's where there was the first discussion of a Trump Tower in Moscow, which of course was the bedrock of a lot of what people thought was going to be the Mallory investigation, was that potential tower in Moscow. So it's, it really are saying here what I suspected might be true, is that Charles McGonigal's career may have started in the 1990s or mid-1990s by tracking the Russian mob in New York City. It's almost uh, impossible for him to have missed Donald Trump in that time because Donald Trump was so intricately involved with uh, the mob at that time. You have to almost aggressively look the other way. And if you're being paid large sums by Oleg Deripaska, you mm. probably are going to look the other way. And Deripaska is not just another oligarch. He's very close to Putin. He controls the aluminum industry, which is a really vital strategic resource. Airplanes are made out of aluminum. So if he's aluminum factories in Ukraine, that means they're at the mercy of a pal of Vladimir Putin. Mm. So the strategic resources are essential. And Deripaska, of all the oligarchs, was always front and center leading the way for Putin. And he was the guy behind Paul Manafort. And if you go back to, you realize that when Putin first tried to take over Ukraine, he was trying to do it not militarily, but by bribing people through the inside, through taking over inside through soft power. And Deripaska was one of the key weapons he was using. Absolutely. And Deripaska and Manafort and a guy named Kalimnik, Konstantin Kalimnik, who later was named by the U.S. Treasury Department as an actual Russian spy working for the GRU. But there were a team, Kalimnik and Manafort, in Ukraine to try and destabilize the government in Ukraine for Oleg Deripaska. That's a really part of the record now. There's no disputing that. So you're right about Deripaska having a long reach in the more recent years. But just staying back a little bit, if we could, on, on that period of times in the 1990s and, and before that, James Kallstrom, if I remember correctly, and you might have more information on this than I do, was the guy who used to wiretap all the Cosa Nostra marble dons at the time because they'd just gotten 
all this fancy technology which allowed them to wiretap a lot of the dons. And that is one of the reasons the Cosa Nostra started to fall apart was because of all these successful indictments of them based on these wiretappings. And this, in fact, led to the, wasn't there a commission around the mob or something like that in the 90s that he, I think he was involved in as well, that he spearheaded. Kallstrom was, to a large extent, credited with the beginning of the end of the Cosa Nostra's reign in New York and Rudy Giuliani as well. But really what they were doing was giving cover for the Russians to move in. The Russian infiltration began, really, I go all the way back to 1980, when you look at Trump's very first commercial success. And it was actually a genuine success. He had very few real successes. But when he built the Hyatt Grand Hotel in 1980, he made a fortune off of it. And he had to buy his TV sets, like every hotel, and he needed hundreds of television sets. And he bought it from a store called the Joy Ludd Electronics Store. And Joy Ludd happened to be a KGB front. And one of the owners was a man named Semyon Kislin, who was close to none other than Rudy Giuliani and remained so until this day, more than 40 years later. And he was one of the very first to approach Trump in selling those TV sets. I, one of my sources was a former KGB major named Yuri Fitz. And Yuri was telling me that, that Kislin was known as a spotter agent. He was supposed to spot new assets that the KGB should recruit. And this was his act of bringing Donald Trump into the fold. Yeah, you could see how Donald Trump would have been an attractive figure for the KGB to groom. Not only was he interested in money, that must make him an easy target, an easy mark, but also his outward appearance would have been so appealing to them, the sort of faux glam, this incredible ostentatious lifestyle that would have appealed to the Russians as an easy target. And, and in fact, he was. It was back then that he took his first trip to Moscow in the late 1980s, wasn't it? Absolutely. And Yuri was saying, if you want to recruit someone, you want to know, are they easily flattered? Do they like women? Do they, have, do they like money? Yeah, easy mark for them, for sure. I just want to underline for people why we're spending so much time talking about this guy that maybe they haven't heard too much about it before, Mr. Charles McGonigal. But the reason he's made the news, and it's pretty stunning that an FBI executive, a guy who's in charge of counterintelligence at the biggest office in the FBI, the New York City field office, is indicted, not only once, but twice on the same day. He was indicted in, in New York by the SDNY, for working for Russian oligarch Oleg Deripaska and laundering a large amount of money for his work. Deripaska sanctioned an FBI officer of his standing, even a retired one, should know that it was a bad form to try and work for Deripaska and any money that he was receiving would be considered completely illegal and would be contravening the sanctions, which is what he was charged with. But at the same time, he was also charged in D.C., for something that happened while he was still in the FBI, because the Deripaska stuff was only after he retired from the FBI. But while he was at the FBI, he apparently took a $225,000 bribe from an Albanian businessman. But it was, had to do with mostly Albanian politics. But what it tells me is that the guy was open to bribery while working in the New York field office as the head of counterintelligence at the same time that he was investigating people like Oleg Deripaska, at the same time as he was investigating Trump-Russia, as he was investigating the biggest attack on American democracy ever, Charles McGonigal was pocketing at least one bribe from the Albanian businessman. You might believe that there's other bribes too. But it's quite stunning to think that he was placed in that position by James Comey at the time because he must have been suspicious around his loyalty and his integrity. 
Absolutely. And it's hard to believe the $225,000 is the only money that changed hands. That's If that's what came from Deripaska, it's a small price to pay when you're facing sanctions. That came from the Albanian prime minister. And the Deripaska amount, I think it was a fair amount of $40,000 a month that he was getting in his retirement, which is pretty good. What do you get for $40,000 a month? You must, uh, must have to be, <laughs> you seem to be spending that money on something, presumably on, on making sure that Deripaska doesn't get into any more trouble or that sanctions get lifted or I don't know what he was doing, but certainly Deripaska was still very involved in trying to get his sanctions lifted at the time when that, that particular bit of action was. But the stuff that irks me the most is in 2016, while we were in the middle of this incredible attack, while we were in the middle of Donald Trump coming the president of the United States, potentially as a plant for the Russians, here was a guy who was willing to accept large amounts of money from Eastern European countries to do their bidding. That tells me that the investigation into Donald Trump was completely bungled, or if not bungled, never was allowed to really succeed. No, I think the FBI has completely fallen down on this. I'd love to know what Frank Vick loses has to say about it. I know that McGonagall reported to him at some point, and I think he expressed shock at what at the revelations. Uh, I went and dug up Charles McGonagall's 2016, this is James Comey, announcing that he's got a new special agent in charge of the kind of intelligence division for the New York field office. And it says McGonagall most recently served as the section chief of the cyber counterintelligence coordination section at FBI headquarters. Mr. McGonagall entered on duty with the FBI in 1996. He was first assigned to the New York field office where he worked Russian foreign counterintelligence and organized cr crime matters. During his tenure in New York, Mr. McGonagall worked on the TWA Flight 800 investigation and was also assigned to the task force investigating the Wen Ho Lee investigation. We can go to that one in a bit. He also investigated the 1998 terrorist bombings in the U.S. embassies in Tanzania and Kenya and investigated the September 11th terror attacks. Now that's a list of bold headlines, big investigations, all of which were unsatisfactory in their speed of resolution, but also in being able to resolve them. And TWA 800, we still don't know what happened to TWA. It's, it disappeared off the, out of the sky. Most people think it was hit by something, but the official reason I still think is that it's had a malfunction of its fuel cell or something like that. And with the events of 9-11, what happened just after 9-11 was extraordinarily astonishing to me, which is if you remember, American skies were completely shut down. There was no air traffic whatsoever. The only planes allowed to fly during those two days, September 11th to September 13th, were planes carrying the Bin Laden family and members of the Royal House of Saud. And I wrote about this in House of Bush, House of Saud, but uh, you know, me, the FBI should have been interrogating these. They really were very involved. The documents that were recently released by the Biden White House certainly point in that direction. And if I remember correctly, the royal family were at least a representative of theirs was at the White House the day, the day after the 9-11 attacks with George Bush. Meeting with President Bush on the 13th. And, and clearly they got a waiver from the White House to let these planes fly. The, all of these are amongst, when I think about my career in news, Certainly TWA and these embassy bombings in Tanzania and Kenya, these were bold, big terror attacks that really captured the imagination of what terror could mean to the United States and what its mindset could mean to, to America. And really, the world hasn't gotten any better since they started with those. We've had a, a constant escalation of these terror attacks. Our security posture has gotten worse and worse throughout all these years. We have been under 
these kind of terror attacks since since the early 90s, and it's been consistent since then. To have this guy, McGonagall, involved in every single one of these key investigations, and then to see now that he is open to bribery and corruption on a scale which is quite large, makes you question whether the FBI has been doing the right kind of work all along in, in, in counterintelligence, in, especially in the New York. And as I, I said before, I think the fact that he was in counterintelligence is extraordinary because when you look at the Mueller investigation, you realize they concentrated only on crimes, not on national security threats, mm. as a counterintelligence investigation should do. So to me, it seemed clear that, it, that if Trump has laundered tens of millions of dollars to the Russian mafia, which after all is connected to Russian intelligence. And if he failed out again and again by Bayrock and other actors that were tied to Russia, the Russian Federation, isn't he compromised? They own him. Yeah, they own him. And But I guess if you have a cop in your pocket who's running the counterintelligence office at the FBI, and you have someone like Rod Rosenstein at the Department of Justice who's going to give you a very limited briefing around Mueller, you're feeling pretty confident that you're not going to get caught because the FBI counterintelligence guy is giving you all the information about what's going on. And if Mueller and his special investigators were doing any, anything outside of the borders of just investigating the narrow Trump-Russia mandate that Rod Rosenstein gave them, no wonder he, they were able to feel so confident. And no wonder they, Trump was able to say things as outrageously as he did about you can go shoot people on Fifth Avenue or, and not be arrested. Because probably the truth of it is, they owned the cops and they owned, they owned what investigation might be coming down the line at them. Plus, they uh, owned the mob. Yes. No, it's, it's just extraordinary. And I think what we see again and again is we have so little oversight in this country. Whether now with the Republicans taking over Congress, it's just a joke. They're going to be doing everything McGonagall did all over again yeah. and not really doing anything to protect us. Yeah, I don't think there's any actual or a government going on right now. Though. There's just like vengeance attacks to set up another really tough election for 2024. That seems to me what they're up to. There's one interesting case that, that I had to look up today because I didn't know anything about it. It was Wenho Lee, which is really the case of the Los Alamos nuclear secrets. And uh, Wenho Lee was a scientist there who was wrongly accused of giving the Chinese plans to this nuclear weapon that the United States had developed. And the rush to judgment there, he spent a fair amount of time in confinement as they were trying to find ways to charge him. There was a very interesting 60 minutes report on him. And I'll just play a short minute from that because I think it'll give us a sense of the players involved and the hysteria around what was going on at Los Alamos and the loss of these nuclear secrets. Even though he's never been charged with a crime, Dr. Lee was fired from his job in the top secret Division X at Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico. He's been portrayed in newspapers across the country as a traitor. And the truth is, I'm innocent. I have not done anything wrong with... Did you at any time pass any information, any U.S. nuclear secrets to the People's Republic in China? No, I never, and I have no intention doing that. Bill Richardson personally fired when holy. that we dismissed an employee who was not following proper security procedures at the lab, who was under suspicion for security breaches. Firstly, we know what really happened at Los Alamos now. We know that Robert Maxwell was able to get a promised software snuck into the software systems of Los Alamos. And that is how 
they were able to siphon the nuclear secrets out of there for China, that it wasn't, in fact, this poor guy who ended up losing his career and spending a lot of time in confinement. But it's also interesting that we see Richardson there, who for still in a lot of people's mind, mine included, is very aligned to Jeffrey Epstein. So you've got two characters there who are suffering and one, one side suffering, the other side inflicting the suffering, but both related to this Maxwell Epstein dynasty that was set up during that time. And it reminds me of how prominent and powerful the Maxwell Epstein crime machine really was. I mean, that they were able to not only infiltrate Los Alamos, get all these secrets out, the most secure place in America, unnoticed, and then also was able to practically frame this poor guy, Wen Ho Lee, who was then framed for this. And until today, I don't think there's an official record that the Maxwell promise and how we lost those secrets. And so we still don't really know what happened with Epstein either. But it seems to me that there is a criminal machine there that has never quite been brought to justice and has never quite been explained to anyone's satisfaction. And I know you wrote about Epstein as well in, in, in American Compromise. There's just too much corruption, is the honest yeah. truth. You can't answer every single question. I've given up on that. But I do think you, if you go back really to the 70s and when there were crackdowns on the CIA, for example, by the church committee, what grew out of that was a lot of people in the CIA, also in Israeli intelligence, started doing off-the-books operations. And there was a lot of illegal arms sales to Iran going on then. There were rogue operatives everywhere selling weapons and doing off-the-books operations. And this is part of it. And Maxwell was a key figure in all of that, and Epstein worked with him. Yeah, yeah there's no doubt about it. That church commission which they're trying to duplicate now, by the way, which is amazing that they, that's their reference because it was the results of it was so horrific. But the church commission did land up clipping the wings of American intelligence operations around the world. And what happened there was they started basically assigning all these black ops to all these supposedly allied nations like Israel, Saudi Arabia, UAE. And I guess just to, I'll just speak bluntly about this. If your allies are out there committing crimes supposedly in your name, Maybe then you need to have people in the FBI office who are not exposing those crimes because you might know that those crimes are happening. Does that make any sense, that idea that maybe McGonagall and, and Free and Kallstrom and, and Rudy were in a way covering up for operations that were being carried out perhaps in the name or at least by the allies of the CIA in America? Certainly, Rudy, if you look at... Uh... Donald Trump's first impeachment and essentially going back 15 years, Paul Manafort, who became Trump's manager, was essentially an operative for Deripaska and other oligarchs in Ukraine and for a Putin puppet named Yanukovych. And when after that, Putin tried other tactics and Trump was withholding, once Zelensky got fairly elected, Trump began withholding weapons from them. And that, that's what led to the first impeachment. Clearly, he was functioning on behalf of Vladimir Putin. 100%. I think that's absolutely true. And why it's shocking, he wasn't really removed from government after that impeachment. Let me tell you a little bit more, if I may, about Mr. McGonagall's dealings in Albania, because they are really fascinating. There's a bunch of characters here on the screen. I'll explain who each of them are. The prime minister of Albania, the current prime minister of Albania, is Eddie Rama, pretty well-known guy. He's an autocrat. There's no other way really to describe him, although he's an autocrat in a democracy. So he rules with an iron fist, but the opposition party, mostly the Democratic Party in Albania, still gets 42% of the vote. So they're still very powerful 
in fact, the reason that the $225,000 was given to Charles McGonigal by his friend, Agron Neza, who's a former Albanian intelligence agent and close to Eddie Rama, was because what they were trying to do in the United States was to get the FBI to launch an investigation into a lobbyist hired by the prime minister's opposition. So the opposition party in Albania is called the Democratic Party. They had hired a lobbyist in the United States to do some work on their behalf. In order to discredit that lobbyist, Eddie Rama paid $225,000 to Charles McGonigal to get an investigation going into that lobbyist. In fact, there was an investigation. The guy was cleared. This was while the guy on the top there is the former energy minister or the deputy energy minister, Dorian Duca, and a close friend of Eddie Rama. And so uh, this is where the indictment in D.C. takes us. So down this road of bribery of almost a quarter of a million dollars that goes from uh, the prime minister ostensibly, but really from his friend, Agroneza, to Charles McGonigal in order to dirty up the Albanian opposition. Now, they've, they're obviously up in arms about all of this in Albania right now, and they're calling for Mr. Rama's resignation. None of it's going to happen, probably, but it's certainly interesting that American politics or American crime investigations are having the potential of overthrowing the government in Albania right on, on Putin's doorstep. It's also worth mentioning that Mr. Rama is close to Mr. Putin, as one has to be, I think, if you're running a government in that part of the world, Albania, right near the border of, of Russia, you'd have to certainly be friendly with uh, the Russians. But up until now, they've been mostly Western-focused and Western-facing since they've got independence in 1991. Charles McGonigal, along with his friend, Angro Neza, who we just saw from the previous slide, a friend of the prime minister, started a company called the Law Office and Investigation Office. It's a company in Albania. In fact, they didn't start it. They bought 75% of that company from a guy named Shefket Dizdari. Shefket Dizdari is a prominent lawyer in that part of the world and also the owner of an oil company that was involved in bidding for some oil fields that they have up for auction, as they do in some countries every year or so. And the fourth partner in this company was Mark Thomas Rossini, another former FBI agent who has been previously charged for trying to bribe a government official in Puerto Rico. You've got two former FBI guys involved in this company. And this is the first that the American public is hearing about this. I've not heard this reported in the United States, but here's the actual paperwork where we can see that these four uh, are in partnership together in this company they had started, plus the 225000 that had been invested or given to Mr. McGonigal actually had a purpose. They were going to be paying for oil concessions that the Albanian government was putting up for auction. Just to explain the concessions a little bit, Mr. Rama's government, I'll pull up Mr. Rama again, had already had a bid out to, to a bunch of, to, to auction a bunch of oil fields. They had already given it to somebody prominent, but then that someone prominent was discovered to have ties to Russia. So they canceled that bid and then they did another auction. The oil auction that they were bidding on was awarded to Mr. Shefket Dizdari because it was his company, Transoil, that landed up winning the bid for this particular oil field. So one assumes Charles McGonigal would have benefited from that, Agra Neza would have benefited from that, and Mark Thomas Rossini, as partners in one of these firms, would have all benefited from this purchase of these oil fields. And here comes the kicker, and it really explains Albanian politics to you quite a lot, is that even though the first oil bid landed up being tied to the Russians, it turns out that even this oil bid, which supposedly was the clean one with Mr. Shefket Dizdari, was also tied to the Russians, that he had a close relationship with Gazprom 
and that it intended to work with Gaspar all along. And it just reminds me, and I think it is an important reminder for all of us to keep in mind, especially as we think about how Russia works in their disinformation efforts and in their destabilization efforts, they work both sides of the spectrum a lot. They have no problem that they'll have one bid, they'll work with one guy, but then on the other, they'll work with the other guy. They want to control the field and they want to control chaos. It's not so much ideological as it is to just try and get as much chaos on the ground as possible. But nevertheless, we have a case here where two ex-FBI agents, one who's just been charged with these two indictments involving bribery and corruption, was also likely involved in an Albanian purchase or an attempted purchase of this oil field that involved Gazprom. It seems like a fairly confined story to just Deripaska and company is actually much bigger because here he is actually working directly with, maybe unknowingly, but still working directly with Gazprom, which is like basically working for the Kremlin. As he, so that's a part of the story that has not yet quite been revealed by the American media, and I'm not sure why. Quite shocking when you think about the guy from the FBI who was investigating Trump Russia, working a business deal in Albania with Gazprom. That's stunning. No, I mean, there are far, far too many ties between the FBI and Putin's people, and whether it's from William Sessions to Louis Freed to McGonagall and many more, there are just too many. Rudy Giuliani, it's ridiculous. It seems to me that whatever monitoring they do, where they expect the former agents to come clean on whatever it is they're doing as they leave the office and declare all their international dealings is not working. And what they really need to do is make it illegal to, to work for, I know it's tough for a lot of these FBI agents who might have to leave and retire early. We can't have former FBI agents running around the world working for our adversaries once they leave office. It's almost too enticing a thing for them to get this payout at the end of their career and go and do this dirty work for Russia or whomever else. And think of it from the point of view of an FBI agent who's out in the field and he sees that his former boss, William Sessions, is now making a fortune representing Semyon Mogulevich, or as Louis Dree is doing with Prevazan. These are the people the FBI was investigating. Mogulevich was on the 10 most wanted list, and now they're defending. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And it's almost, it's hard to imagine a world where you're like someone like Louis Free is not calling up the investigators involved in each of these investigations and either providing direction or comment or whatever. It just shouldn't be allowed that you can do that. And you mentioned Sessions. I think that there's, of all of them, the most shocking and egregious thing is that William Sessions left the FBI and then went to work for the world's number one mobster. It's corruption on a level that really is hard to fathom. And it's a major weakness in the American law and order system. It's amazing to me the way the bar has gotten lower and lower as I've aged. When I was very young, this is, goes back to the Eisenhower era, but his, President Eisenhower's chief of staff, Sherman Adams, had received a very nice overcoat as a gift, a Vitruna overcoat. And there was so much protest against it. He got it from a lobbyist. And this was seen as pay for play. And I, I don't know what a fancy overcoat costs these days. Well, I can't imagine it's more than a few thousand dollars. And yet today you see someone like Jared Kushner getting $2 billion. And everyone just says, oh, huh. It's amazing. It's amazing it's, that the lucrative side of politics and the thing that makes it attractive for people to come into politics now is the ability to use power and money to, to subvert the system. It's much more enticing than, than the other side of it, which is to go and help your fellow man and come up with some good govern, governing policies. It's, 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 the scandal, the congressman became a, say, an oil lobbyist, or mm. went into, which happens all the time, of course. But now we see even in the sacred FBI, that they're actually working uh, for the bad guys. 
You know, it's really interesting. This Thomas Rossini guy that we just showed you, the other FBI agents involved in this uh, deal around the Albanian oil field. I found this clip of his on Albanian TV. Here he is talking about the oil bid that failed, but he's also talking about a tweet that he sent out, which helped frame the Democratic Party opponents of the existing government in Albania. So he sent out this tweet. Think about it. Albania is the last country on the Adriatic to join the EU, which is the goal of Merkel and Rama. And what all Albanians want, Putin wants to destroy the EU and Albania and EU denies his warm water port. Why is Barisha, the Democratic Party leader, Putin's puppet? Now, of course, Barisha is not Putin's puppet. This is an FBI guy getting paid by Russia to put out this disinformation on Twitter. And then he goes on television on Albanian TV and has this to say, which this is a former American FBI officer. By staging those protests at this point in time, okay, he's playing into Putin's hands. That's why he's a puppet, whether he knows it or not. That was my whole point of my emotional tweet. Stop. Think first what this means in the overall big picture. That's what's most important. Think about the long-term effects and ramifications of that. Not just your short-term goal of you want Mr. Rama out and you want to be prime minister or you want Mr. Bosch to be prime minister. If there's something wrong with any Rama, if there's change that's needed, fine. But now is not the time. You are being a puppet of Putin. It plays into his hands by having that protest now. You've basically got a former FBI officer doing Putin's disinformation work in a foreign country. It's appalling. And all for these concessions that he was trying to get, these oil concessions that they ultimately got from Gazprom, that were with Gazprom. It's the ultimate amount of cheek when you think about the work that these guys were meant to be doing. It's also a very similar paradigm to the whole Hunter Biden case. Because there again, you have them. Biden was actually trying to root out, help root out corruption in Ukraine. And when he was vice president, and it happened, his son was working for Burisma, and it really should have been investigated, but the, but the Ukraine had a corrupt Putin puppet as an attorney general, and Biden was putting pressure on it. Yeah, it's, it isn't, actually, I think the Hunter Biden case is a lot still to be uncovered. That certainly deserves a real investigation. Tell us a little bit more about this brilliant book that you wrote, American Compromise. Tell people about what they can expect if they want to read it, and... Uh, and, uh, and why, why it's such a good reason? I'd like to go back to the beginning and see how all of this started. I go back all the way to 1980. And it, uh, again, this was Donald Trump. He was just becoming a superstar. His very first major development, the Grand Hyatt Hotel, right next to the Grand Central Station, they needed, like every hotel, they needed TV sets. And somehow or other, he ended up buying them from a man named Semyon Kislin, who I'm told was a spotter agent or the KGB. And when Trump started meeting with them and bought those TV sets, he was being seen as an asset. And that was the door open. And after the, the Trump met several times with a woman, Dubanina, the daughter of the ambassador, first to the U United Nations and then to the UN. And she was started flattering Trump and saying, why don't you build a Trump Tower in Moscow? That would be great. And that was what they started dangling in front of him. And it was the KB that actually drew up plans and sent Trump to Moscow in 1987. That was, it was done by the KGB, according to my source, Yuri Schmitz, who was in the KGB, was major in the KGB. Yeah, Yuri and you were on the show, actually, a year or so ago when you first came out in that riveting conversation. Yuri's take is so fascinating. 
And then you talk a lot about uh, this, the, the house in Miami, Trump and Epstein battled over and that Trump ultimately was overpaid for it. And that was a way to get him out. of. And then Robolova doubled it. Yeah, like, yeah and that's how he got out of bankruptcy back then. This was an operation to cultivate an asset. And you paint a very gripping picture in this book about how they did it. It's a fantastic read. Everyone should really read it, especially considering that this man is even considering another run. It would be shocking if he achieved it. But right now, he remains the lead candidate of all the Republicans by 17 points in, one, in the latest poll. He may just yet be the next president of the United States. Once I can't believe that I'm even uttering those words, but it, it may happen. Craig, it's so good to see you. And thank you very much for spending the hour with us. Always fantastic getting your insight into all of this and learning so much from you. So thank you very much. Thank you, Zeb. I appreciate it. That's Craig Unger, the author of American Compromise. And that's all the show we have for you tonight. Don't forget, you can always help us out by going to patreon.com forward slash narrative and becoming a patron. You'll get exclusive content there. And you also get to know that you're supporting the truth, which is always nice to have in your journalism. Have a good night, everyone. We'll see you next Wednesday. Every minute of narratives reporting, every story that we break is made possible by our patrons. You too can become a patron by joining at patreon.com forward slash narrative. Narrative where truth lives. One day, you'll tell the story of autocrats, crooks, and kings who came for our freedom. A story of citizens who stood up to tyranny and won. The people prevailed and renewed an old vow to a more perfect union. And that was just the beginning. The story continues. Narrative. Where truth lives.